0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America, NA member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Fish Bites, the Miami Heralds, Miami Marlins podcast. I'm Jordan McPherson. Hope everyone has enjoyed the holidays and is looking forward to what will hopefully be a great 2023. Uh, With 2022 drawing to a close, I figured it would be best to dedicate this episode, the final episode of Fish Bites for 2022, to looking back at the year as a whole for the Marlins. We're going to split it up into four overarching themes with a few topics discussed inside each theme just to look back at what has fully encompassed these past 12 months. With that, let's jump right into it. And our first two moments are going to focus on two major departures that took place throughout the year. The first one, uh again, to go back to February 28th, a day that was already set to be a doozy throughout Major League Baseball. That was the day that MLB had set as its deadline for the MLB Players Associations to to agree on a collective bargaining agreement in order for the season to start on time. Again, remember the. MLB initiated the lockout back in December of 2021 when the past CBA expired. And again, they set everything for February 28th so that spring training could start and they have enough time to set to have the season start as scheduled. But a much bigger story arose on a local level around 11 a.m. that day when Derek Jeter announced through an external PR site that he was leaving his role with Marlins as CEO and as a 4% shareholder, citing that, quote, the future of the franchise is different than the one I signed up to lead. And remember, 2022 was going to be the last year that Jeter was under contract. He signed a five-year deal when the new ownership group, Bruce Sherman's ownership group, took over. That was set to expire at the end of 2022. Sherman sent out a statement later on, basically saying it was a mutual agreement to... And Jeter's role with the club, they ended up splitting up his responsibilities. He was the head of both baseball and business ops. Kim Ang, general manager, over became the head of baseball operation decision-making. Caroline O'Connor became the head of business operation decision-making. And that whole day just set off a chain reaction things. I was on site in Jupiter that day. With the focus on what was going on with the lockout and the negotiations, which were taking place at Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium, the spring training home of both the Marlins and the St. Louis Cardinals. But when the Jeter news came out early in the day, about seven, eight hours before MLB was going to initiate its deadline, obviously my role changed. Uh, I was with a bunch of national writers, uh, people for New York Times, Washington Post, The Athletic, Yahoo, SI, the list goes on and on. And when the statement came out from Jeter, I was able to just faintly feel the rest of the writers just looking at me going, well, you've got some work to do. And that I did. So I ended up having to write both the news story, the analysis with Jeter also mentioning that he felt that the Marlins were in a better place at that point than when the Marlins took it, when the Sherman's ownership group took over in 2017, which you can look at it from the state of the minor league system being improved. Yes, that is improved compared to when they took over, but obviously the results on the field at the big league level have not panned out yet. And who honestly knows if they will enter, will pan out as we head into year six of this. Uh, and with that, Cheater uh, was merely the first departure, not the last, throughout the season. The Marlins also parted ways with VP of Player Development and scouting Gary Dembo on June 29th. Reminder, Dembo was G- essentially Jeter's right-hand man. So it seemed like a matter of when, not if, for when Dembo was going to ultimately end up leaving the organization. And by the end of the season, the Marlins had also let go of Director of Player Development, Jeff DeGroote professional scouting director, Heidi Rod, and five members of the pro scouting department. But the big depart second departure for the point of this podcast came on September 25th, or at least the news of it came on September 25th, when the Marlins and Don Mattingly announced that they mutually agreed that Mattingly would not seek a contract renewal, which ended his seven-year tenure with the club. And again, we all know Don Mattingly. I've been on this beat for four years now. He was a class act through and through obviously having to maneuver through the rebuild, keeping players upbeat and trying to field a winning team or get a winning team with what he had at his disposal. He handled it all with grace throughout. Uh, He ended his time in Miami as the longest tenured manager in franchise history. He had a record of 443 wins, 587 losses over his 1030 games, the total games, the total wins and the total losses are all franchise records. But it, and also at the end of the day, Miami only had a winning record once during that seven years. That was that pandemic-shortened 2020 season when Miami overcame its COVID-19 outbreak at the start of the year, finished 31-29, they reached the playoffs for just the third time in franchise history, swept the Chicago Cubs in the wild card round, and then got swept by the Atlanta Braves at, in the NLDS. The Marlins hoped that that was going to be a turning point for them. It ended up not being back-to-back losing seasons after that in 2021 and 2022. And that was the end of the Don Mattingly era. But also, you have to remember where Mattingly came in to the situation. When he entered as manager during the 2016 season, Marlins weren't thinking rebuild. They had Jose Fernandez as their ace. They had the outfield of Giancarlo Stanton, Christian Yellich, Marcelo Zuna, Ichiro was a fourth outfielder. You had D Gordon, you had JT Rio Muto. At the big league level, there was talent. Obviously, everything behind them, there wasn't enough to supplement them. But after that, those first two years, and obviously after Jose Fernandez's death toward the end of the 2016 season, you knew that things were starting to spiral and the trajectory of the Miami Marlins franchise. The organization was about change. Mattingly handled all of that the best he could, but ultimately decided he and the Marlins together agreed that it was time for a new voice. Uh, Mattingly, he's now the bench coach for the Toronto Blue Jays. Congrats to Donnie on that role and for him to still be in the sport. I know that he was decided he was iffy about whether or not he was going to try to go back in an MLB role when the season ended, but to see him in a role that should fit him well, I'm happy for him to see what's going to happen next for him. And from the departures to some individual performances that are worth noting, and obviously the most notable, and how can we start anywhere else other than Sandy Alcantara's Cy Young season. Alcantara became, he was the unanimous winner for the NL Cy Young Award, beating out the LA Dodgers' Julio Urias and Atlanta Braves' Max Freed. Just the he was the 15th overall unanimous winner for the NLC Young Award, first since Clayton Kershaw in 2014, first Marlin to ever win in the franchise's 30 year history. They only had three other pitchers be finalists for the award prior to Alcantara. Uh, Don Willis was runner up in 2005, Kevin Brown was runner up in 1996, excuse me, and Jose Fernandez was third in 2013. And Alcantara, for his sake, he definitely earned it led MLB in innings pitch 228 two-thirds innings through six complete games worked at least eight innings in 14 of his starts which is the most by any MLB pitcher since 2014 and he had a 2.28 ERA which was the second lowest in Marlins history and it was the second lowest in the National League behind only Arias's 2.16 held opponents to two earned runs or fewer in 25 of his 32 starts had that incredible run before the all star break thirteen consecutive starts where he won at least seven innings and he gave up no more than two hundred runs in twelve of those thirteen uh of his six per- of his six complete games three of them were against playoff teams he had the he had the uh no hitter against the or he had the get the solid starts all throughout again six complete games that is nothing to snuff at uh and then Alcantara is a headliner, of course, but I also have to just give a tip of the cap to the rest of the Marlins rotation. You look at pa- a guy like Pablo Lopez, pitched a full season for the first time as a big leaguer. Jesus Lazario made a big jump this year after struggling when he got acquired midway through the 2021 season from the Oakland A's and it looks like he could be a number two or number three in this rotation. Edward Cabrera and Braxton Garrett both made big jumps as they... As they made their as they made their next steps this last season, and then if you can get Trevor Rogers to return to his twenty twenty one form, that gives Miami a minimum of six legitimate starters vying for five spots during spring training. That's again the Marlins are building around that starting pitching. That's what they've been building around for the last few years now, and they're gonna need that to continue to be at a top level if they want any sort of chance at competing in two thousand twenty three. Uh, next up, going from pitching to the guys behind him on defense, you got to go with Miguel Rojas and his near-gold glove season. He was a finalist to be the NL gold glove winner at shortstop for the second time in three years. Lost out to Dansby Swanson, but Rojas certainly had his case. Uh, if you look at fan graphs, Rojas led National League shortstops with 15 defensive runs saved. His 10 outs above average, according to Statcast, tied with Willie Adamas for fifth in the NL. Uh, Rojas also at one point. He had that stretch of the season where he played 64 consecutive games at shortstop without an error that broke the previous franchise record held by Hanley Ramirez by 10 games. And Rojas had just seven total errors over the season. And again, Rojas played through an injured right wrist the entire second half of the season. He had surgery on it the second to last day of the season. Uh, all reports are that his rehab is going well. Again, there should be no concern for him going into spring training And into the last year of his current deal with the Marlins. And one more individual effort on the positive side, at least for half a season, the emergence of Jazz Chisholm Jr. as a potential star, if he can stay healthy. And that's a big if, as we know right now. Uh, Chisholm, in his second full-time, full big league season, he was the spark for Miami's lineup when he was in the lineup. Uh, he only played 60 games and before suffering a season-ending stress fracture in his low, lower back. And he played those 60 games while with a torn meniscus that happened during spring training. At the time of his injury, again, end of June, right after he was named an all-star for the National League, or right around the time he was named an all-star for the National League, Chisholm led the Marlins with 14 home runs, 45 RBI, 39 runs scored, and he was second with 12 stolen bases and had an 860 OPS. That's the type of production the Marlins need from their lineup, which once they lost him and once they lost Jorge Soler, which I'm going to touch on momentarily, Their offense went from being middle of the road, which with the starting pitching they have should be enough for them to at least contend to being one of the worst in baseball. They need Jess Chisholm to be that one of those table setters at the top of the lineup. They need Jess Chisholm's pizzazz, his energy, his ability to make plays happen, both with the bat and with the glove. And they need him to stay healthy. And if he does, he's going to be a critical piece for this lineup in 2023 and beyond. And since I briefly touched on Soler, got a combo him and outfielder, fellow outfielder, Avisado Garcia, into the final point on individual performances. And this one, not for the same reasons as the previous three. Soler and Garcia, they were the Marlins' two big free agent signings last offseason. Soler signing for four years and $53 million. Solaire signing a $12 million deal for 2022 and then having player options in his contract for 2023 and 2024. He obviously took the $15 million option for 2023. It's a no brainer considering his production or lack thereof from last season. Uh, We'll start with Garcia first. Played 98 games last year, his fewest in a full, non shortened season since 2018 after being hampered by a couple of hamstring injuries he only hit 284 266 on base percentage 317 slugging all career lows also only 35 RBI and eight home runs which is not the type of production you're hoping for from a guy who you've pegged as middle of the order bat in a lineup that needed offensive production garcia he's been open since he came back from his last his final il stint about how he knows the season was a disappointment he knows he didn't set the right example that he wanted to uh, he's addressed that with the front office, with Skip Schumacher, the new manager about how he knows that his poor performance last year is going to be a kick in the butt. It needs to be a kick in the butt as he goes into year two with the Marlins. And he's doing what he can during the off season to try to be ready. He's already been working with new first base coach slash outfielder coach, John Jay throughout the off season and is trying to be in proper shape for when spring training starts in mid February and as for Solaire, he only played in 72 games last year, back injuries, pelvic injuries, and as a result, he only hit 207 with a 695 OPS. The one bright side was he hit 13 home runs in those 72 games, which if he if you extrapolate that out to a full 162-game season, that's about a 30-home run season, which is what the Marlins were aiming for with Solaire. Uh, and considering the lack of moves the Marlins have made so far this offseason, we'll touch you. Bid on that a little bit later on. Uh, the Marlins at the moment are putting a lot of stock into both Soler and, and Garcia and, for that matter, Chisholm, staying healthy and having balanced back years. Whether that pays off or whether that bites them in the butt, we're going to find out shortly. And at, now that we've touched on most of the big league storylines from last season, let's transition into what went down on the farm. Going to be really quick on this one. Uh, the good... How can you talk about anybody but 19-year-old Yuri Perez? 6'8", 220-pound righty, pitched well above his age. Again, was 18 going on 19 when he started the year and was thrown straight into A. Struck out 106 batters over 75 innings that year over the season. Missed some time toward the end with with a minor injury, but managed to come back to finish the year and pitch in the playoffs and help A Pensacola win the Southern League. Uh, he held opponents to a two twenty-three batting average. And if there's, if, if Yuri's his trajectory continues the way that it went last year, it's very likely we'll, we'll see him at some point in 2023. And a couple other bright spots for the Marlins down the farm. Left hand pitcher, Dex Fulton, the guy I've been high on since the Marlins drafted him back in 2020. Uh, last, his second full year, after removed from Tommy John surgery, which sidelined him his senior year of high school, worked his way up to double A. And, again, you have the one-two punch there between Uri and Dax. Uri a righty, Dax a lefty, plus the inevitable return of uh, Jake Eater, who missed all of last season with Tommy John surgery. You have three core pitchers that are waiting in the wings on top of the depth of Marlins already have at starting pitching. And then, the for me, hitting-wise, I was just I was impressed with the young middle infielder duo of Jose Salas and Yeti Cape. Yes, they're both still in the lower levels of the minors, but they are probably two of the Marlins more capable hitting prospects as you look at the system and where they're at. And they're a few years away, but that might be the people you may be worth waiting out on. And speaking of that, the the flip side of the minor leagues, none of them Marlins M L B ready position players prospects, I should say. Establish themselves as potential starters going into next season. I mean, the Marlins, after the trade deadline, after they sort of fell apart once Jazz and Soler got hurt, and you had a bunch of other injuries that happened around that time, they gave a lot of guys chances. JJ Bleday, Peyton Burdick, Gerard and Carnacion, uh, Jordan Groshans. once they acquired him from a trip from at the trade deadline from the Blue Jays, Lewin Diaz, uh, Charles LeBlanc, all of them got ample playing time down the stretch. And really the only two who may have act, may have asserted themselves in some sense were Groshans who could potentially platoon with a Joey Wendell type at third base and Charles LeBlanc who can play any of the infield spots, most likely first, second, and third. And at this point, the Marlins need a second first baseman because they only have Gary Cooper right now. Claywin Diaz got DFA'd in November. He's gone through a carousel of, of teams, a, uh, the Pirates picked him up at one point. The Ori- Orioles picked him up at one point. I believe he's on the Braves right now. Uh, Lade, Burdick, and Carnacion, none of them really stepped up enough. Uh, the Marlins obviously still, need, still have a need at center field, uh, whether it's Jesus Sanchez or Brian De La Cruz, or if they try to get Lade another crack at it, that's probably Lade's main in would probably be the, be the fourth outfielder because you have, obviously, Garcia and right, you have Jesus Sanchez, Brian De La Cruz, Uh, You have Jorge Soler, but I'm thinking, barring a change, he's most likely going to be getting the bulk of the reps designated hitter, especially if Cooper has to play a lot at first base just because they don't have anyone else. If you can keep Soler at the DH, do what you can to minimize the injury risk, it'll benefit the Marlins, especially with the current roster situation that they have. So that could be Bledet's potential in is as the reserve outfielder or Platoon type, again, having another lefty bat certainly doesn't hurt. But we'll see how that goes. We'll see how the questions get answered during spring training in February. And uh, to wrap up this one, uh, now that we've started looking to 2023, the final couple topics involve the future. And it starts with the new manager. Uh, Marlins hired 42-year-old Skip Schumacher to replace Mattingly, made that official in At the end of October and introduced him in November. He's made, he's assembled his staff. He's obviously has a win now mentality, which has been basically his mantra throughout his entire career, even going all the way back to his high school days. Uh, He knows what it takes to win. He's been on winning teams. He won the World Series with the Cardinals in 2011. He brought in John Jay as first base coach, who was part of that 2011 team. He saw how winning teams are constructed. He was with the Padres for a few years, both in the front office and in coaching roles. He was a bench coach for the, he was the bench coach for the Cardinals last year who made the playoffs. He knows what it takes to win. He's been in winning clubhouses. And now the question is, can he make that permeate throughout the Marlins Clubhouse? But also on the flip side of that, manager can only go as far as the talent around him. And that brings us to the final point. Uh, which is the offseason and the moves that the Marlins haven't made. Uh, Miami's real own, real, true acquisition from outside the organization so far this offseason, their only acquisition at the big league level out, from outside the organization was reliever J.T. Chargois, who they acquired in a trade with the Tampa Bay Rays, along with infielder prospect Xavier Edwards. Everybody else so far this po- to this point has been promotion from within. And when you look at just everything else that's gone on throughout the division, which we discussed on the last couple episodes, and and I'm just basically going to just say, namely the Mets, who has a payroll after luxury taxes that's basically half a billion dollars right now. Miami on paper is at fourth best in the NL East. And when you go into the offseason and when you announce after you hired your manager that everything's about winning this year, you're in win-now mode, you have to be able to compete, Looking like you're at best going to be in fourth place just with everything looking how it is right now. Not great. Will things turn around? They could again, everything, the game is played on the field, not based off of what we see on paper right now. And there is still time to do stuff between now and spring training starting and between now and opening day, but time is running out. The clock is ticking. Got again, spring training starts up in mid February. We're at the end of December at this point. And, moves and physical and actual and actual something of substance to back up the talk of what's being what's been done or what the Marlins are trying to do. There needs to be something physical, tangible to show for it sooner than later, if the Marlins want to be able to have any chance to rationalize any sort of optimism going into the 2023 season. Uh and with that, that's gonna do it for this week's episode of Fish Fights. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Have a happy new year.